I want you to imagine a man who's poor. And when I say poor, I mean impoverished. He doesn't have. And because he doesn't have, he suffers, he lacks, and he's constantly concerned, constantly worried, constantly having to deal with the fact that he's needy and he doesn't have what it is that he requires. Compare that to its opposite, a wealthy man, a man who has everything he possibly could need and more, a man who has abundance, a man who has plenty. Clearly, their lives are very distinct. Clearly, their lives are very different. And there's a pasuk that we quoted in the first session, Kol yimei ani ra'im, all the days of a poor man are bad. Morning, night, afternoon, all day, every day, it's bad because he hungers, he lacks, he doesn't have. V'tov leiv mishte tamid, and if a person has a good heart, it's a constant party. And during that first session, we mentioned Rabbeinu Yonah, who explains that we could be dealing with two people with the same income level, two people with the same amount of money, but vastly different perspective. Both are poor, both don't have enough money, but one has a life of beauty and happiness because in his perspective he has enough, and the other one just doesn't have enough, never can have enough. And a person's perspective can greatly change their sense of enjoyment, their sense of happiness. But the Gra has a very different reading of this Pasuk. The Gra explains that this Pasuk is speaking about two people living opposite lives, but both being very wealthy. Two individuals who have an excess, an abundance of materials, of possessions, of money. One could be leading a life of extraordinary joy and happiness, leave Tov with a good heart, Mishta Tomit, a constant joy, a constant party, and is parallel, is corollary, living a life of Gehenim suffering. Even though both have a lot, the difference being that the man doesn't have the right perspective, feels that he's needy, can never be satisfied, is always walking around with a sense of, I need more, I need more, and hence his life is miserable. Now, the problem is, how do we understand that? How do we relate to that? Meaning, we know that every word the Chazal tell us is accurate and true. We know that the Vilna Gaon's Pedrush understanding is written with such profundity. The problem is, how can we relate to that? How can we relate to a man who has it all, who has tremendous wealth, abundance, and yet his life is misery because he lacks, because he constantly feels he doesn't have what he needs? It sounds very difficult to perceive, very difficult to relate to, very difficult to learn from because it doesn't seem to fit our world. And I'd like to see in this session if we could better understand exactly what the Gra is sharing with us and understand exactly his perspective. And to do that, I'd like to begin this session with a question similar to the question we asked in session one, the same game sort of with it that... uh, What I want you to do is answer the question. I want you to answer without a filter, without thinking, just instantly say the answer that comes to your mind. As soon as I ask the question, I want you to think of the answer and either say it out or at least in your mind's eye, say it. Here's the question. The question is, are you rich? Are you rich? But I don't mean in terms of, you know, um, relationships and meaning in life. I mean material possessions, Physical wealth, are you wealthy? Are you rich? Now, the interesting thing about that question is 
that I've asked that question over and over and over to diverse audiences, old and young, very successful, and people just beginning a life. And invariably, no matter which audience I've asked it to over the course of 20 years, I've never had a person say, yes, I'm rich. And it's astonishing because many people in the audience clearly were. And the question is, why is it that no one seems to feel rich? And if you don't quite understand why that question to me is profound, I'll share with you a perspective that I feel is eye-opening. If you had a chance to read the book, Stop Surviving, Start Living, you may recognize some of these points. But let me share with you a perspective on life that I think is often missed. My grandmother grew up in Poland right after the First World War, and she described that her family was well off. They did well. How did she know? Because they had a wood floor. Most of the houses in the shtetl where she grew up had floors made of dirt. They were well-to-do, my grandmother's family. They had a wood floor, but it was a two-room house. Two rooms means two rooms. One room where the parents slept, and the other room where all the children slept and ate, did their chores, and did everything else. And believe me, the rooms were not big, and the families were not small. And if you look back at the lifestyle of our relatives, grandparents, maybe great-grandparents, who lived within a hundred years or so of our current life, and you look back at their lifestyle, you'll see that it's incomparable. There is almost no way to compare our lifestyle to theirs. In Europe, in that era, the average person lived in a house without heat. Oh, you had a fireplace that somehow heated up but went out at night. There were cracks in the wall that let in the cold. You used an outhouse. There was no indoor plumbing. You had to go out to the well with a bucket. They lived in a life that was so vastly different than ours that it's hard even to make a comparison. As an illustration, my father had a friend who also was in yeshiva in Europe somewhere around this time. And my father's friend had a handy way of telling whether it was a cold morning or not. He would leave his negavasa, the water that he used to wash in the morning, he would leave it at the foot of his bed. In the morning, he would kind of peek out from under the covers. If there was a layer of ice on top of the water, he knew it was a cold day. If the water hadn't iced over, it was a comfortable day. But here's the point. The man slept in the very room that the water was in. Water freezes at below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That means he slept in the room, and if it was a cold day, it was under 32 in the room. We don't live in that kind of life. In our homes, if it dips under 68, we're already starting to adjust the furnace. And if it somehow the furnace goes out, we call emergency. And if we can't get it above 50, we are sleeping somewhere else. We live in a life that's so replete with luxuries and comforts that it's difficult to compare our lifestyle to people living a hundred years ago. In fact, there's almost no basis of comparison. My grandmother, when she came over to Europe from Poland, she came to Berlin, and she had a Tante Peril. Tante Peril came to visit her. And when Tante Peril came to visit, my grandmother had to say, you have to see, 
and you won't believe your eyes, in the apartment, in the apartment itself, we have a bathroom. That was a type of luxury that was unknown in Poland in the 1920s. And the average person rode a horse and buggy. The average person chopped wood at night. The average person had one set of clothes, if at all. And these things that we take so for granted just didn't exist. If you look at pictures in the United States of America, the Golden Medina in the 1920s, you'll find some interesting points. If you look at pictures of the tenements of the Lower East Side in the summertime, you'll see almost every fire escape had blankets, mattresses. People were sleeping on the fire escape seemingly all summer long. Here's the question. Why were people sleeping on the fire escape, sleep in your apartment? The answer is New York City bakes in the summertime. If it's 95 degrees and that sun is baking on that apartment all day long, well, at night, when you're ready to go to sleep, the apartment is still in the 90s. And there was no air conditioning. And even fans didn't do much because the heat was right in the walls. And the only way that people could really sleep in comfort is they would put their mattresses, their blankets, out on the fire escapes. But that's not our world. We live in air-conditioned comfort. We live with such luxuries that it's difficult to even compare ourselves to other lives. As an example, if you've ever seen a house built in this country before World War II, I'll make an interesting observation for you. Unless the house was redone and refurbished, I almost guarantee that you'll find large rooms, large bedrooms, large dining rooms, large kitchens, but very, very small closets. Now, why is it that any house built in this country before World War II had large rooms but small closets? The answer really is quite simple. The builders built those houses for people at the time. The average man had a few suits. The average woman had a few dresses. So they built large rooms because that's where you lived. But who needed large closets? Who possibly could have so much clothing so the builders built closets appropriate for the time? I know a woman who has a three-bedroom apartment. The third bedroom has a cleaner's rack going around. She uses that as a spare closet. We have so much abundance, so much in terms of material possessions, that it's mind-boggling. My Rebbe, the Rishivas, that's all grew up in America. And again, that sort of time period, the late 1920s, early 30s, right around the Depression era. And the Rishiva... Zatzal had an interesting problem. As a young boy, he wore a hole in his pair of shoes. And he didn't have the chutzpah to ask his father for the quarter that it cost to repair the sole. So he had a problem, because every time he'd walk in the street, there was a hole in his shoe, and his sock would rub against the concrete, and he would rub out a hole in his sock. What did he do? He came up with a solution. He took a piece of cardboard, put it on the top on the bottom of the shoe, put his foot on top of it, boom, the cardboard protected his foot, solved the problem, until one day he hit a puddle, splash, gone was his solution. Do you know anyone today who can't afford a new pair of shoes, as in brown shoes and black shoes and red shoes, and of course, heaven forfend to play tennis in running shoes, and of course, if you golf, you need a whole different wardrobe. We have such luxuries and opulence that if you compare our lifestyle to the lifestyle of people living a hundred years ago, you cannot compare it 
because we are richer than rich, unimaginably so. When my brother was a single fellow and he was working on Madison Avenue in advertising, he already, as a single fellow, he had enough discretionary income to buy what he needed. He felt he needed to dress appropriately for work, and he had quite a number of suits. I remember I brought some of my friends home from Yeshiva one time. We went downstairs. He was in the basement. We had to look for something, and somebody noticed, like, suit after suit after suit. They said, oh, do you have a men's suit store here in your house? And he was serious because there were 20 suits in every different shade and every different color. Because if you have some discretionary income, you buy this suit and that suit and that suit. But that type of wealth didn't exist, was unimaginable back in the days of our forefathers, in Slobodka, in the great yeshiva, in the shul in Slobodka, which was a town in Europe, like any other town, around the 1910s, 1920s, the average balabas, the average man walked into shul not wearing a suit. Maybe you say they were stylish. They guess they wore sports jackets and slacks. Not quite. You see, you got a suit in that world when you got married. And that suit lasted you week after week, month after month. And you got another suit maybe when your daughter got married. But there are many years between your own getting married and your daughter getting married. So Eventually, you wear a little hole over here, you put a patch, hole over here, you patch here, patch here. Eventually, you can no longer patch it, so you have to get a new jacket. But, of course, that new jacket doesn't match the pants because the average person could not imagine buying an entire suit of clothes. So the average person would come to shul wearing a jacket made of different material than the pants. That's not our world. We live in such a vastly different world that when you compare ours to theirs, it's very, very strange. And if you don't appreciate what I'm saying, let me make it very clear. The average tax-paying citizen in our world enjoys luxuries and opulence that kings of yesteryear could not imagine. If you take the wealthiest kings living two, three hundred years ago, they could not begin to even envision the regular person's wealth. Let me give you a classic example. There's a famous picture of King George. King George was the ruling monarch of the British Empire right around the Revolutionary War period. And there's a picture of King George sitting on the throne. He's sitting on the throne with a very large pelt. On top of that large pelt is a fur. On top of fur is another fur. And there's King George sitting on the throne, pelts and furs, Big, as you can imagine. Here's the question. Why is King George sitting on the throat with furs and pelts and etc.? Well, the answer is the picture was painted in the winter. And in the winter, it was freezing cold in the king's palace. You see, you heated up the palace with a fireplace some hundred feet yonder. Radiant heat spreads out, but it just you know kind of warms this part. But the back of the king is cold. So what does it do? Turn around so... Very nice. The back of his king is now warm and now the front is cold. The king of England with the crown jewels could not heat Buckingham Palace. The king of England walked smelly, dank, poorly lit hallways at night. And the king of England got into a bed filled with 36 inches of duck feather. Have you ever lied down on a pillow made of duck feather? It just kind of crunches. That means the king's back went... 
And there was no chiropractor in the morning to kind of put him back together again. But more than that, the King of England rode in a carriage pulled, of course, by 12 white steeds. Very elegant. Very noble. Of course, the wheels were made of wood and the roads had potholes. Meaning to say the King of England got into his royal coach, pulled by his 12 white steeds, and he went up and down, shaking. And if he had to ride to the Earl of France's wedding, it was seven days, 10 hours a day, shaking up and down. I'm not a wealthy individual. I drive a plain vanilla Toyota Camry, air cushion suspension. I have stereo sound, surround sound in my car. The king's of your commissioned Bach and Beethoven, I have it better. Not only can I choose which music to listen to, I can balance, I can choose the treble, the bass, but more than that, I have solved 50% of Shalom Bayez problems. 50% of marital disputes have been solved very simply. You know how? In my car, there are dual controls on the heat. If my wife wants it 71, her side can be 71, mine can be 69. If she wants it 69, that's fine. And if you think about the fact that we live with such luxuries and such opulence, and if you compare people from different lifestyles to ours, you quickly see that it's astonishing. And one more observation. I was once speaking on this topic. And a woman came over and said to me, Rabbi, what you're saying is absolutely true. I was recently involved with a Russian immigrant, and my job was to help her acclimate to the new country. And when I brought her to Wegmans, which was, is a beautiful supermarket, when she saw the plenty, when she saw the abundance, she fainted. You see, if you grew up in the USSR in communist Russia, standing online for two hours for a chicken was part of your daily routine. And when this woman left there and came to America, again, 20 years ago, what she saw in terms of opulence, of availability, of food so available, was so astonishing that she literally fainted. And if you would like to know whether we're rich or not, do a little experiment. Walk into Walmart. A super... Walmart, 100,000 square feet of materials and goods arranged, all available. And for the most part, we have enough money to buy, maybe not as much as we want, when we want, but by and large, we could buy it, whether it be foods, whether it be clothing. And if you compare our lifestyle to other generations or even other countries, certainly to third world countries, you see we enjoy opulence and wealth that is astonishing. So here's the question. Why is it that we don't feel rich? Why don't we feel wealthy? Why don't we enjoy our abundance? I have never in my life gone to bed hungry because there wasn't enough food. But that was a part of every man's life for millennium, for thousands of years. If you hear the expression, well, we'll just have to pull our belts in, When there wasn't abundance, there was a shortage, people lost weight. In fact, as an experiment, look at a picture in the United States of America of people living 100 years ago. You'll note that everyone was rail thin. 
Why is it that everyone then was real thin? Today, everyone is suffering from being overweight or obesity. It's not because we've suddenly changed the world. It's because a hundred years ago, there was just not enough to eat. As a matter of fact, in Europe, there was such, such a thing called a balbusser. A balbusser was a corpulent individual, a man who was very, very large. And a balbusser walked into the shtibel, walked into the shul. People, ooh, a balbusser. You know why? Because the only person who had enough money to actually be overweight had to be so wealthy that this was clearly a rich guy. <laughs> That's not our world. $50 billion a year in the diet food industry in our world. Everyone's problem is there's so much, <clears throat> such abundance, how do I keep my waist down? So the question, I believe, is profound. If we have such abundance, such plenty, why is it that no one feels rich? I have it all. Look what I have, the food. Look at the variety. Look at the, the amount. Look at my Shabbos table. Wine from Israel. Oranges from China. My global expansion is beyond description. Just look at the food labels. Look at the food in your pantry and you see they come from all over the world. We have so much abundance, so much. Why don't we feel rich? And this question is actually quite profound. And I believe the answer to this question is that the human being quickly becomes accustomed to whatever it is that he has, and whatever he has becomes normal, becomes a standard, and no longer means anything to him. But the Chovos of Ovis gives us a mushal, a parable. He says, if you fundamentally want to understand this, imagine the following. Two brothers, two 15-year-olds are having a discussion. They're living in a house that's in a mansion, and they're living the gilded life, and each brother is discussing, and the first brother says to his other brother, he says, you know, it's astonishing. Our father is so generous, private tutors, and the best of everything. There's no ex expense that, that he spares. He's so generous. It's unbelievable what he does for us. And his other brother says to him, oh, I don't know about the old guy. I think he does it for his own honor. All this getting up at 6.30 and these private track coaches and all this special tutoring. I think he does it because he wants to live through us. What's the difference between brother one and brother two? Brother one was adopted. You see, brother two grew up in the lap of luxury. He grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth, and hence it means nothing to him. Brother one knows what it means to be deprived. He was adopted when he was 13 and brought into this palatial manner, brought into this life of luxury, and everything that he has he appreciates explains we're a little bit like that brother who was brought up in the lap of luxury. We're a little bit like that brother who's spoiled and we cease to enjoy that which we have. And if you would like to enjoy life, you have to train yourself. You have to train yourself to actively and actually recognize the benefits that you have. Do you remember the first time you drove a car? I remember vividly the sense of independence and power. The first time you used a new gizmo or gadget and it was a sense of luxury. That sense quickly leaves you, but it's something that if you work on, if you think about, you can bring back to some extent. 
but more than anything, because of the extraordinary wealth that we enjoy if a person does even a little bit of work on recognizing that it didn't have to be this way, and it wasn't always this way, and even today for many people across the globe, it's not this way. And if you do an active exercise of comparing yourself to others, what you begin to see is we are wealthy beyond description, wealthy beyond belief, but again, it requires a lot of work. And it requires breaking out of this sort of treadmill of every time I get something, it becomes accepted and normal. Now it's only when I get more than that that it's something, and that quickly goes down. And before you know it, the more and the more and the more, nothing means anything. And the only way to escape this trap is to stop, focus on what we have, train yourself to appreciate it. And again, the simplest way is to compare your life to other people's lives, to imagine what would be if you didn't have this, and to recognize that we have such abundance, such wealth, that it's astonishing. But I believe there's another reason why it's difficult for us to recognize that we're rich, that we're phenomenally rich. You see, I think we have a little flaw in our vocabulary, and I'll explain to you what I mean. Sears Roebuck catalog was one of the major introductions of marketing in the retail industry of America. As a matter of fact, throughout the farmlands, the Midwest, the Sears Roebuck catalog was the staple, and it really became a defining part of the American culture, as well as, in general, the American lifestyle. Now, Sears Roebuck's did a number of very interesting things. They invented the good, better, and best category. You see, up until that point, anyone who had a product had a premium product, and they had their junk product. So a person had money, would walk in the store, no, I don't want your junk, give me the premium, give me the best. Now, <clears throat> Sears recognized that there were people who could afford good, people who could afford better, people who could afford best, so they invented this category, good, better, and best. And unfortunately, I think that most people fail in understanding that distinction. You see, if the definition of rich means richer than you, if the definition of wealthy means the wealthiest man in the country, then I have a little secret to tell you. You'll never be rich because there'll always be somebody richer. There'll always be the richest person. As a matter of fact, here's an observation. Warren Buffett suffers terribly, terribly. Forbes magazines explain to us. For seven years straight, he was the second wealthiest man in the world. Oi! Number two, I'm not number one. Bill Gates beat him seven years in a row. And even this year, in 2016, Bill Gates is the single richest man in the world. And never Warren Buffett, poor guy, only number three. Ay vey, life is miserable. Now, if you're able to get by on $60 billion of personal wealth, you might be able to be okay despite being number three. But that's the reality. If you need to be the richest to be rich, then guess what? You're never going to be rich. But I want to share with you a definition, a little bit of a novel definition. Would you like to know what rich is? Let's look at its opposite. <clears throat> What's the opposite of rich? Poor or needy. If you're no longer poor, if you're no longer needy, well, guess what? You're in that other cat. That's not rich. Rich is only if I have more than him, more than the other one. But if you have all of your needs met 
and you have abundance and plenty, you're not rich. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, that's a terrible definition of rich. The definition of rich means I have everything that I need and maybe even more. And I don't know of a person in our society who doesn't have everything that he needs and even more. Me. I have debts. I have problems. I, I don't have what I need or more. Quite the opposite. I, I have big trouble. And if you sincerely feel that way, I'll give you a little exercise. Take a piece of paper and make two columns. On one column, put the word need. On top of the other column, put the word want. And then what I want you to do is go through your possessions and put a check next to each object that's a need. A legit, you actually need it to survive. You need it maybe you know, to go to work or you need it to really... You actually need it. And then the other category is wants, things that you want. Listen, I like to have it. I like to have another this. I like to have another suit. I like to have another tie. I like to have better food. I like to have a better house. I like to have, you know, my wants. And if you go through all of your possessions, you'll find that quite a number of them are in the needs category, but many, many, many of them are in the want, meaning I don't need them. I could survive without it, but I wanted it, so I got it. Now, how do I know that I'm right on this? Because if you carefully go through all of your possessions, you'll find the many things you don't even want. Oh, my goodness, that's last year's style. I'm not using that. <clears throat> that gizmo, that, ga- that lo- I don't need that. And if you go through your closets and go through your boxes and go through your things, you'll find untold amount of things that you just don't want. Now, I have a little question. If you need it, if you need it to survive, you need it to exist, how could you not want it? The answer is you didn't need it then. You surely don't need it now. And if you cleave up your possessions into the categories of needs and wants, what you'll find is we are very, very wealthy, astonishingly wealthy, and we enjoy tremendous, tremendous things. But I have one more category that I'd like you to put on that list. If there are needs and there are wants, there's another category called luxuries. Luxuries are things that are just extravagance, just well beyond what anybody could really need, sort of an indulgence, sort of an extra, a frill. And if you're honest, what you'll quickly see is we have many, many, multitude things that are completely luxurious. And my point isn't to tell you to cut back and live an austere lifestyle. My point is to think about it and appreciate it. The next time you pack a suitcase and in the airport meet somebody from a different country, and they see you're traveling, what, were you going for a, for a month? Are you taking a whole family? Because the amount of things that we take for our, I just, I need it, I, I, I push it, I can't live without it, really are extremely luxurious. And you know why that exercise is so important? Because I guarantee if everything you have falls into this category of I need it, you're not rich at all. You know why? I need this. I need this. I need this. I need I need everything that I have. I barely have what I need. And once you begin to train yourself to recognize there are basic needs of a human being. And then there are other things called wants. And beyond that, there are even luxuries. And thank God I live in a generation. I live in a time when I have many, many things that I want that I don't need. And I could purchase them. And I have many, many things that are beyond even that. Extravagances and indulgences that I bought because I wanted to. If you're not sure that I'm right, one observation. Every one of us has a faucet in the kitchen. 
and we have tap water. Do you know what a luxury that was? For thousands of years, man moved from place to place when the water dried up. And I don't mean nomadic people. I mean to say water, whether providing for your crops, providing for your sheep, whether providing for your needs, was a huge, huge commodity. And if a wells grew up, dried up and there was no source of water, people moved, civilizations were destroyed. We don't have those issues. We turn on a tap and we have water right there, crystal clear, pure drinking water, checked by the government to make sure that it's sullied, untouched, no bacteria. And yet how many people do you know drink tap water? I can't I'll drink bottled water. I would never expose my, my kids or my palate to that. I can't even drink. It's disgust. My UPS driver only drinks bottled water. You're talking about a level of wealth that's so astonishing, so beyond the pale, that the average person today doesn't even use the regular tap water. I need better than that. And again, if you quickly look at the astonishing wealth that we have, what you see is it's remarkable, it's unbelievable, but if you don't train yourself to understand it, all you have is maybe your needs, and even those aren't really met because there are always new needs, always new things you want, and there are always going to be more and more that you need beyond that. And if you'd like to understand this grah and how he explains the Pasuk, it's really quite simple. Kol yimei ani ra'im. Unless you train yourself, unless you work on yourself, you could be wealthy beyond, phenomenally wealthy, and you'll not have even your basic needs met. I don't have, I need more and more, and I don't have. And as a result of that, I'm poor, I'm impoverished. Because when you don't have your basic needs met and you need more and more, well, guess what? Life is lousy. Life stinks. And a lave tov, the very same level of opulence. If you work on your attitude, if you work on your perspective, and you recognize how much I have, so much beyond my needs, it's incredible. I have entire closets full of things I don't even want. I can't even think about what to do with them. When you recognize that life is beautiful, mishdet tomi, a constant party. Why? Because look at my abundance. Look at my wealth. The next time you sit down to a meal and study the incredible amounts, the incredible varieties, and the incredible different types, say to yourself, we are wealthy beyond description. I couldn't help laughing. I walked into a supermarket in Muncie in the middle of the winter, and there was watermelon. Watermelon. Watermelon grows in the south in the summer. Watermelon doesn't grow in Rockland County in the winter. What is watermelon doing there? Do you know what watermelon is doing there? That watermelon was flown in. Flown in from a tropical country or frozen in the previous winter. Do you ever buy an apple in the summertime? Now, if you know apples, apples become ripe in October. How do you have apples in the supermarket in the spring and in the summer? Well, the answer is that they pick the apples in early fall, well, they're not quite ripe, and they freeze them so that the next spring, the next summer, that's when they sell them in the supermarket. All year round, we have fresh fruit available to the, not the kings, not to wealthy, wealthy people, to regular you and I. 
Scurvy was a disease that people got sailors famous for getting it, but the average person in Europe got it all the time because citrus fruits were unavailable. Citrus fruits don't grow in my backyard, but I have them all year round. I eat mangoes. I go to the supermarket and buy a mango. Do you know where mango grows? I guarantee not in your home country. We have imported foods from across the world. We have bulbs from Holland because flowers, fresh cut flowers flown in are what we need for our Shabbos table. We enjoy food. We enjoy clothing. We enjoy luxuries that are astonishing. But if you don't train yourself to appreciate them, you're poor. I have nothing, nothing, I have nothing my whole life, nothing. I barely have, I don't have my needs met. And what the Grah is telling us is these two lifestyles, great wealth or extraordinary poverty is based on one thing, your perspective. A lave tov looks at what he has and says, it's astonishing. Look at the abundance. Look at my wealth. He enjoys it. But the same amount of wealth. If you don't train yourself, if you don't work on yourself, you're impoverished, you're poor, you're in desperate, dire straits, and the choice is yours. Because naturally, within a very short amount of time, whatever was novel and new becomes old and yesterday's news, and what was luxurious and great becomes whatever. And unless you train yourself, you'll be on this ever continuing treadmill of needing more and needing more and never having anything but my basic bare needs met and even those aren't met. And if you train yourself a life of luxuries, of opulence, of wealth, and more than ever in our time, not to feel rich means you're not working on yourself. You're not understanding life and you're just going through it casually and you're missing so much of what life is about. But I have one more observation to share with you. In our day and age, you would assume that advertising would be dead. Dead. Finished. I'll share with you why. Any product, any commodity, any service that you needed, I guarantee you would have already. We have such wealth, such abundance, that if you actually needed it, you would have it. So advertising should be non-existent. How could you advertise... If everybody has as much money as they possibly need for what they really need, so what are you going to sell? How are you going to sell anything to anybody? And I'd like to share with you the great secret of advertising. In the 1880s, advertising used to sell the feature. And you can look at the ads from back then. They would sell the box of cornflakes, which was back then, based on its feature. It was crunchy and it was etc., Saw a hand saw had the uh, so many so many teeth. This is what it would accomplish. By the 1920s, American advertising became much more sophisticated, and they were no longer selling the feature but the benefit. What's the benefit of our product? You're going to have a crunchy breakfast. And what's the benefit of our product? We can cut. You can cut three trees down in the time of one. They began focusing on the benefit. But again, after World War II. There was such abundance. America became such an affluent society that by 1957, every person now had double the amount of products, double the amount of wealth as the average person before World War II. And since 1957 to now, we all have twice as much of consumable goods, twice as much of luxury items, twice as much as expendable income as did the average person then. 
So how can you sell anything to such a rich society? If they needed it, they would own it already. And comes along the brilliance of advertising. They're not selling you what you need. They're selling you the need. You didn't realize it, but this is what you need. Not even what you want. This is what you need. How much better your life will be. How much happier you'll be. And you see the celebrities, and then you see the glitz and the glimmer as they have that new product. And before you know it, you see the message once, you see it twice. By the seventh time, you're already beginning to, you know something, I do need that. I do need that. And there's a term so definitive. The term that's used in marketing, the term that's used in business is a consumer. We're marketing to the consumer. Do you know what a consumer is? One who consumes, as in eating, devours. And what you're being sold is constant needs. You need this, you need this, you need this. And on an ongoing, constant basis, you're being exposed to bigger and better and more and fancier and newer. And it's not just that it's good. And it's not just that you'll be satisfied. You need it. You have to have it. And the buying cycle in in America is very, very clear. First, it's exposure. They show it. Once you see it, then you want it. Then you borrow and you buy it whether it's a new car, a new fashion, new watch, whatever it may be. If you're not sure that I'm right, what is the timepiece on your hand? I wore a particular timepiece for almost 20 years. It was a Timex watch. And it's not because Timex happens to be the best watchmaker in the world. It happens to be because in Walmart they were selling it for $19.99. But you know why I bought a Timex? Because it was so accurate and had so many functions. And not only did it have a chronograph, and it had the month and the date, and the date over here, and the time over there, and the stopwatch. If you are really that bent on really telling time well, you buy yourself a, for $100 a watch that's radio frequency, atomic time, and it will tell you within one hundredth of one second the exact time in Greenwich world time, down to the one hundredth of a second. So why is it that people have $2,000 watches, $5,000 watches, $20,000 watches? I guarantee from a functional standpoint, it does nothing that a Timex doesn't do. And if you're a little bit fancy and you really want accurate, you buy yourself an atomic clock, radio frequency controlled on your hand. But you know what? The $20,000 watch says, it says, ha, 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 look at me. And someone once explained to me the difference between a, 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 between a Rolex and a, and a fake. You know, they sell knockoffs. They sell knockoffs all over, you know, on the street. You can buy a knockoff Rolex for 100 bucks. Why would a person spend $18,000 for an oyster pearl Rolex? Well, you can tell the real Rolex from the fake. You know how you can tell? Because the Rolex hand jumps. And the knockoff hand goes smooth. Oh, I get it. I need it. I have to have it. And as astonishing as it sounds, we buy into it. And if you're not sure that I'm right, look in the parking lot of a shul and tell me if there aren't a few Infinities, a few, maybe a Jaguar, maybe a BMW 7 Series. The BMW 7 Series for $120,000. 
I've been stuck in traffic on the West Side Highway time after time after time right up against a $100,000 car. I once sat next to a Bentley. $250,000 he spent on his car, and my Toyota Camry was doing just the same. Yeah, but his car on the open highway can do... Zero to 120 in 0.77. Yeah, when, when was the last time you were on an open highway and you had to do zero to 120? When was the last time you were on an open highway you could do more than 65? What you're being sold is this, wow, you need it. You have to have it. And would you like to know why this is an interesting observation? Because if you are bombarded by advertising messages... And you're constantly exposed to not just you want it, but you need it. You are guaranteed to be unhappy, to be unsatisfied. Because you'll be a human being who wants, who needs, who wants, who needs all day long. I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. I I never have enough. I can't have enough. Because look, every time I get satisfied, there's something new. They count the average person in the United States of America today sees between 1,500 and 5,000 advertising messages a day. Everything has a, a logo. Everything has a brand name. Everything has a marketing message behind it, from ball games to buses to... You get in a cab today, and they have the ads inside. You go to the supermarket, and playing up on the screen are the ads. You go to a gas pump. And on the screen is the marketing message being bombarded 1,500 to 5,000 separate messages a day. You need it, you need it, you need it, you need it. And unless you work on yourself, unless you counter the culture of our times, you are destined to be ever needy, ever hungry, and live a life of very, very difficult times. What the Grah is sharing with us is a profound understanding. Wealth is measured by one criteria, your perception of it. If you understand that you have needs and you understand that your needs are met, you'll be wealthy beyond belief. But if your needs are ever-growing and ever-increasing, then all the money in the world will never help. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be filled. And if you buy into the advertising messages of our day Buy into the consumer era that we live in. What you're going to be filled with is constant unrest, constant unhappiness. You'll never be wealthy. You'll never be rich. And in our day and age, it's so astonishing. Because in the course of history, there has never been this much abundance. Never been this much opulence. There's never been a time when the average person has so much, so much, Watch yard sales. Go from house to house on a Sunday and see people selling the extra stuff they can't even think about what to do with. We have such luxuries, food, clothing, material possessions, sneakers of the latest brand and the latest. But my life is miserable because I don't have the newest sneaker. That is correct. If you're bought into the message of consumerism, you will be constantly unsatisfied because you'll be constantly being sold new needs and more needs and bigger than that and more than that. And after you have this, you need something more and you'll be in this never-ending treadmill. And if you could get off that treadmill and recognize, I have needs, legitimate real needs, and Baruch Hashem, they're met. 
Look at my food. Look at my clothing. Look at the house I live in with straight walls, heat in the winter, air conditioning in the summer. I get in a car that drives 60 miles an hour. 60 miles an hour is something that's unheard of. Do you know when the first steam locomotives were invented and brought to this country and the rails were laid? Doctors came out with stern warnings. Don't ride the train. Who knows what could happen? It moves at unparalleled speeds. Who knows what will happen to the human body because those steam engines move at over 35 miles an hour. Who knows what the forces will bring? Who knows if you'll even be able to breathe? We get in jet planes flying 500 miles an hour. I don't know people who haven't been to Israel, who haven't been on a plane. We have such astonishing abundance and luxuries. We have technologies. We have things that we enjoy. And if you don't train yourself to actually really... In, oh my goodness, the internet connection is so slow. I had to wait. I, I, I'm connecting on Skype to Israel. And it's all over a second delay. And I, how can I talk to my grandkid this way? This is terrible. I see the face. I talk to him live. But it's not fast enough for me. And it's my life. I need a new computer. I need a different Wi-Fi connection. And my point again is not to live on a steer barren lifestyle. My point is to appreciate what we have, the astonishing wealth, the astonishing progress, the astonishing luxuries that we have that were unheard of, didn't exist. Thomas Jefferson did a study in the United States of America. He found that the vast majority of homeowners sewed their own clothing. That means to sew your own clothing, you have to first bring in the cotton, then card it, then spin it, then weave it, then actually sew it. And the materials were coarse and rough, and there were no washing machines. The average person in England in the 12th century bathed in the summer. Because it was a known medical fact that to bathe in the winter was bad for your health. And what that means is in England, in the 12th century, the average person stopped bathing around October and didn't bathe again until March. Do you know what it means to be stench-filled, to walk around scratching and itching with lice in your bed and all kinds of things, running and wearing scratchy, itchy clothing all day long? If my undershirt gets wet, I put it in the washroom, I pick another one. I have white shirts stacked up one after another after another. We live with such incredible wealth, such abundance, but if you don't train yourself to appreciate it, you'll never understand it, you'll never relate to it, and exactly what the gross says, you'll lead a life of misery. Kol yemei aniroim, all the days of a poor man are bad. I need and I need, I have to have and I have to, and I don't have it, and I don't have it. And unless you train yourself, unless you break away you're going to be trained in needs and wants and wants and needs, and you'll be in this ever unsettling, ever unhappy mode of constant needing. If you stop, learn to appreciate, learn to work on it, do the difficult exercises of actually saying, wait a minute, it didn't have to be this way. Look at what I have. Take stock of it. you lead a very different life. But I have one last observation I want to share with you. Rashi describes to us that there's an Ani and an Evion, and it's a very real difference. An Ani is a man who's poor. He might have a house, 
He might have possessions, but he doesn't have enough money. He's a poor man. It's unfortunate. But an evyon is something different. An evyon is a man who has nothing. No money, no possessions, nothing. An oni is a bad life. An evyon is a man who's destitute. Zero, nothing. I love my phone because it has a camera on it. And I could take pictures regularly of my children, now of my grandchildren, and it's wonderful. One day I discovered something a number of years back that suddenly the camera, I don't know what happened, just was facing the wrong way. They're taking pictures of me. Now, I don't want pictures of me. I want pictures of my grandkids, my kids. What, what, what? So it took me a while to figure out how to make it go the other way. And lo and behold, almost all cameras today have a selfie mode where you click the button and instead of taking pictures of that person, takes pictures of you. Okay, selfies are in. But of course today, selfies have to have a little assistance. So the selfie stick is part of your walking equipment. Anytime you go on vacation, anytime you go somewhere, you have to have a selfie stick. So you can put the camera on the selfie stick and from way up there, take the picture and you can show people how I'm in Disney World. Hey, I'm in Florida. Hey, I'm here. And you show the world exactly what life is about. Would you like to know why that's relevant? Social media is a very interesting phenomena in our day and age. Forget the fact that you're going to waste un told amounts of time on it. Forget the fact that you really don't need to know what that person had for breakfast, whether it was oatmeal and raisins or not, before she went to the gym. Let's leave that part out of it for a moment. Do you know what social media shows? Every person I see there taking selfies, me having a great time here, me in Hollywood, me in LA, me over here, me over here, because every single selfie, of course, is me and my best me smiling, my hair straightened, nice tan, always with wonderful people. And the more time you spend on social media, the more you're going to see this one's life is great. Look what they have. And this one's life is wonderful. Look what he has. And look what she has. And look what they have. It's unbelievable. And the more time you spend on social media, the more miserable your own life will be. Because guess what? No one's life is smiles and greatness all day long. Everyone has ups and everyone has downs. Everyone has times when they feel great and times when they don't. But they don't put those pictures up there on their Facebook page. And what you see up there is everyone with the latest this and the latest that and enjoying this place and enjoying that. And life is great. Their kids are great and their life is great. And everything by him and by her and by them is great. And my life stinks. My life is completely nothing. An uni is a man who lacks money. An evion is a man who lacks everything. It's not just that I don't have enough material possessions. My kids are lousy and my wife isn't pretty and my house is horrible and my vacations aren't. Because look what he has and he has and he has. It's unbelievable. My life stinks. I'm an evion, impoverished, poor. Everything about my life is horrible. And as strange as it sounds, there's never been a wealthier generation in existence And there's never been a poorer generation in existence. So much abundance, so much opportunity, so much there, but so much competition and so many other people and things to look at. And that one has this and this one has that. And look at his situation. I'm like, wow, if only I, if only I, if only I. And unless you train yourself, you are destined to be miserable. What the Gras is talking about is money and money is a big deal. What I'm referring to over here is much bigger than that. 
If you're an ani because you don't have and you train yourself to need and need and need, you will be unhappy. But if you don't train yourself to be happy with your lot, with your life, I guarantee you'll be an evyon, far worse than an ani, completely destitute. And all you have to do is go on Facebook, go on various social media sites where you get to see what they have and they have and this one has and that one has and that one's kids are doing this and this one and everyone has it great except for me. Hashem wants us to be happy. Hashem put us in a generation of opulence and wealth. But you have to know how to live life. You have to train yourself. You have to recognize what Hashem put you here for and how much it is that Hashem gave you to enjoy.